Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Stephen J. Height to discuss his book, Resowing the Seeds of War, Presidential Peace Rhetoric Since 1945. Thanks for tuning in. Ending a war, as Fred Charles Eakley wrote, poses a much greater challenge than beginning one. In addition to issues related to battle tactics, prisoners of war, diplomatic relations, and ceasefire negotiations, ending war involves domestic political calculations as well. Balancing tides of public opinion against policy needs poses a deep and enduring problem for presidents. In this first-of-its-kind study, Resowing the Seeds of War explains how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and Obama managed the political, policy, and bureaucratic challenges that arise at the end of war via a series of rhetorical choices that reframe, modify, or unravel depictions of national enemies, the cause of the conflict, and the stakes for the nation and the world. This end-of-war rhetoric justifies ending hostilities, rationalizes post-war national policy, argues for the construction of post-war security arrangements, and often sustains public support for massive financial investment in reconstruction. By tracking presidential manipulations of savage imagery from World War II to the War on Terror, Resowing the Seeds of War concludes that even as metaphoric reframing facilitates exit from conflict, the same rhetorical gestures incur unexpected consequences that make national involvement in the next conflict more likely. I'm excited to be joined today by Stephen J. Height to discuss Resowing the Seeds of War. He's taught at Florida Atlantic University, California Lutheran University, and California State University Northridge focusing on the form and function of presidential rhetoric in policy deliberation. He's published in Rhetoric and Public Affairs in the Southern Communication Journal, as well as in a number of edited volumes. Stephen, thanks for joining me today to discuss your book. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned in the introduction, this book is really a kind of first of its kind look at this particular field of rhetoric, this rhetoric around peace and around ending war. How did you come to be interested in this particular aspect of political rhetoric? Well, I had long been motivated and driven by a feeling of almost hopelessness when it came to, to stopping war, and primarily because of the Bush administration's desire to plan and, and, and ultimate uh, policy to, establish, to launch a war with Iraq in 2003. And that sort of drove me on an academic path where I wanted to research and investigate why is it we kind of do these things? And then in my third semester of graduate school, I was taking a class in argumentation and foreign policy, and every student had to present on some aspect of argumentation and foreign policy that they were interested in. And I had already read a great deal of research and past studies about what gets us into war. And so I thought, well, it'd be great to make a presentation about what gets us out of war. And so I started searching around in the databases and I quickly realized there basically weren't any studies about that. Nobody had talked about how presidents or political leadership discusses the end of war at all. So I made a presentation by basically um, identifying certain presidents. Truman was one, but a couple other, you know, Nixon, Eisenhower, and even Obama, although this was pretty early in his term, 
I sort of built a presentation around kind of what these presidents had been discussing and when they were announcing an end to the conflict or, or, or discussing how they wanted to end the conflict. And I realized pretty quickly in doing that, that there appeared to be some sort of genre present that uh, all of these presidents were doing similar things, even though um, the situations were pretty distinct. And so that was kind of the genesis moment of the project. And it just developed from there um, into a dissertation that was massive project of genre into the ultimate completely <laughs> rewritten project that I've now happily published with Michigan State. I want to follow up on the genre question, because I think that, you know, the, the book is an analysis of rhetoric. So you're dealing a lot with how people are speaking and what kinds of gestures they're making. I wonder if we could start that conversation by thinking a little bit about the kind of rhetoric that gets us into war. It seems like a lot of what you end up saying about the genre of post-war or war-ending rhetoric is a kind of mirror reflection of the way that presidents and others use rhetoric to gin up war. So how do we talk about our enemies, about our foreign policy interests when we're preparing for engaging in a war? Sure. This conversation has happened in two fields, political science and communication studies. And unfortunately, it hasn't overlapped as much as it should. But in communication studies, there's a long history or a long scholarly history of discussing um, what we refer to as the savage idiom or savage imagery, which is to say presidents in particular represent foreign adversaries as some form of savage, barbaric, impulsive, aggressive, folks who don't deliberate, um, but instead just reach and take what they want. And by referring to adversaries in that capacity, we also present ourselves as reasoned, as making clear and cool-headed decisions, as civilized, as always engaging defensive actions instead of uh, you know, aggressive or offensive wars. And so from a political communication or political rhetoric perspective, uh, what you have is, is a deep body of literature that pinpoints the ways that individual presidents will speak about foreign adversaries and, and, and how they do that. And so a small example of that is when George H.W. Bush discusses the need to repel Saddam Hussein and, and Iraq from the nation of Kuwait in 1990 or 1991. He talks about this sort of savage actions of Iraqi soldiers and, and even raises this story, which turns out to be completely false. And, you know, but he raises the story about Iraqi soldiers killing uh, Kuwaiti babies, right, to sort of invoke this passion in the American people that we have to defend and, and be righteous. On the other hand, uh, from a political science tradition, this type of um, rhetoric or discourse is often discussed as sort of securitization, this notion that there are foreign adversaries out there and that the United States has to take a number of measures to ensure its own security because those adversaries will ultimately press us or, or attempt to press us in ways that can jeopardize the security of the nation as a whole. And so those two type of arguments are present across presidential discourse, stretching back to the origins of the nation. And there's work that I've published as well about prior eras where, where the same type of rhetorical tactics are, are underway in which we characterize the enemy in this sort of savage terminology. But we also, and presidents also raise issues of security or insecurity as a rationale to justify conflict. One of the things that you're looking at in the book is really the kind of dark side of that, which is that once you've established the enemy as this other savage group of people incapable of rational thought or civil discourse or democracy or whatever, when it comes time then to end the war, you have to somehow 
try to undo all of that or try to manage that perception, you know, with this, with this post-war rhetoric. I think another one of the challenges that you really highlight early in the book is the very complicated ways in which the idea of ending a war is vague and, and hard to manage just in general, like when you don't have a kind of definitive victorious moment that you can point to and say, aha, see, the war has ended. It becomes a much more diffuse, like managerial project. I wonder if as a way of thinking about that, you might tell us a little bit about why you settled on the conflicts that you decided to look at, because the book has an interesting blend of conflicts that ended rather definitively and others that did not. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. It's one that um, I had to, to grapple with as I was writing this book. World War II made a lot of sense to start the book there. It made sense because not only is it a definitive victory, right? There's, there's two victory days celebrated in one calendar year, first in, in Europe and then in Japan. And it's, a clear, it's just a clear win, right? We, we won the war most decisively. It's, it's the sort of model case for what happens when you win a war. But beyond that, it's also a moment in which U.S. foreign policy shifts fundamentally and probably irrevocably, which is to say we, we move from a very weak military power. Uh, I think one assessment is we were 42nd in the world in terms of military strength in 1940 to the number one military power in the world by 1945. And we stay there as the number one military power in the world ever since. And along with that power comes an institutionalization of a, of a broad foreign policy bureaucracy, the establishment of multiple international organizations, I believe all of which are, or most of which I should say, are based in the United States, NATO is not. And the expansion of ultimately of presidential power to make determinations that, that influence how the country addresses future security threats. So World War II made great sense for those reasons. Korea also makes sense um, because Korea is a, is a very interesting situation of stalemate. And stalemate presents, its, it's a unique rhetorical situation because it's, if you win decisively, that opens a variety of um, rhetorical options for how you characterize the enemy, which I, I do discuss in the book. Um, Korea, when you, when you stalemate with somebody, it, it kind of creates a situation where how do, you, what, how do you discuss that? How can you sell that to the American people and how can you discuss that with the foreign policy bureaucracy? What does stalemate mean for policy? It's, it's an interesting uh, quandary. Uh, Vietnam as well was fairly straightforward, a straightforward decision for, for me as an author because Vietnam is an example of a, what happens when you have a really bad and untenable peace deal. Nixon came into power on, on the notion that he was going to win or end the war in Vietnam. And of course, it ended, uh, as did his presidency, but it did, we didn't win it. We really lost Vietnam. And we saw that, you know, 1975, when the country was unified by the North Vietnamese. The only case that was problematic, actually, for determining, you know, for this book was, was the war on terror. And it was problematic because I really wanted to write about Afghanistan. Iraq never made sense as part of the war on terror. It, it didn't make sense, but also Iraq had its own particular problem, which was there was a war between Iraq and Kuwait in 1990. The U.S., and the United Nations intervened in 1991, evicted Iraq, and then there was a, a no-fly zone enforced by the United States for over 10 years beyond that until uh, the Bush administration decided to invade Iraq. 
but it's tangential, if that makes any sense, to the broader issue of the war on terror, which is what I want to focus on because the rhetoric of the first Bush and then Obama administrations was very distinct when you're thinking about terrorism as a war or or the what what the enemy means in that context. It makes a, a ton of it makes a, it's it's a big distinction than 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 prior wars. Afghanistan is also a situation in which there is no possibility of a deal of a peace deal, and so it makes cognitively makes sense to me that it's a, it's a nice way to end the book uh, because the the progression was from the best deal to a stalemate to a bad deal to a no deal. That was kind of why I went with Afghanistan rather than Iraq. Beyond that, I'll just add one more one more comment here. The movement from victory to what we have now, which is not really victory or loss, it's just kind of perpetuity, it is an is an interesting movement for me as well as a as a as a historian of political rhetoric because in some ways it mimics the experience of the 1800s, uh, where we we move from victorious situations to perpetual violence against Indian nations, and so um, and and it's a, it's an echo. It's not a mirror. It's you know there's there's a certain you know, resonance that that I saw in that story that that kind of echoed the the prior era, but it 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 really. So when I when I kind of figured that out, it really um, just cemented the the you know the idea in my head that Afghanistan and the war on terror had to be the the last case study. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I and I want to push this a little bit further in a way that might seem like returning to the foundation of the conversation. But you point out in the book that the U.S. has only declared war officially what five times, so that we can think of all of these other conflicts and police actions and aggressions and et cetera, in a way that, you know, the common person would interpret perhaps as acts of war or, or perhaps not, but as part of a war, you know, structure, but that aren't officially legally sanctioned war efforts. And I think that distinction is somewhere at the heart of what you're talking about here with Afghanistan, the idea that the war rhetoric serves a certain purpose and that it sets up a kind of state of affairs that allows for ongoing, continuing, and other kinds of actions in the region. Could you say a little bit about how you think of, you know, the concept of war in the book? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's a, and it's a, I mean, from my perspective, it's a great line of thought because one of the outcomes of this project in my mind is that we do not live in a world in which formal declared wars is the norm. And I make the point in the conclusion, and, and I argue fairly extensively the conclusion that we should see these things as distinct. And we should see them as distinct because they invoke or involve different types of rhetorical resources. So if you're going to go to a formal war, that means taking your claim, your case to Congress, right? Like FDR did with his, you know, day of infamy speech, which is to say you have you have a certain let's call it a rhetorical or political threshold you have to cross to get Congress to sign off on on conflict. But those are the rare situations. Those are the rare cases. And so we have an alternative vernacular, I would say, for thinking about how to resist or or object to or, or deliberate about security challenges that may not fit the classic definition of war, interstate conflict against you know, two or more parties. And that's kind of where the book ends, is thinking about what does it look like to object or to deliberate about security challenges, which are very real, and we all experience them. We know that there are bad actors in the world who do seek to, 
to commit acts of violence uh, against the United States, against our allies, against people in their own countries. We, those are real things that happen, but we should think more about what it means to have a foreign policy that is geared towards eliminating those threats rather than seeking other other options or other avenues for addressing uh, those types of issues. The salient point for me is really that when you're talking about peace, you know, when you're talking about a rhetoric of peace, it's serving a different function than referring to a kind of tranquil state of you know, harmony and bliss. It often is a, a different kind of hostility, different kind of action than you think of, you know, when you think of World War II and storming the beaches of Normandy and that sort of thing. Could you say a little bit about what characterizes presidential depictions of peace? How presidents use that rhetorical category to do the kind of work you're talking about, moving from open hostility and warfare to another state of affairs? Absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, there is a there is a genre here, and the book isn't really a, a study of genre, but it's present and it runs through the whole book. And so, one of the things that you see when you start looking at this rhetoric is that you pretty quickly can realize or identify that presidents who are interested in making peace, one of the markers of a, of a speech that seeks to promote some sort of peaceful settlement of conflict is that they begin to move away from depictions of the enemy people and focus more on the enemy government. With Truman, he was very clear about this and spoke in many, many speeches across a year plus, two years even, um, where he talked about, he would begin to characterize the Germans and the Japanese as victims of their own totalitarian governments, which is a rewriting of history in many ways, um, especially since, for example, in Germany, basically every single person was a member of the Nazi party. And he really made moves to distinguish between those who were like the true Nazis versus those who just went along with it. And that happens in most conflicts where presidents will attempt to distinguish between the sort of true party, the truly responsible party, and the parties who don't have much of a choice about what's going on and, and they can't stop it. For example, uh, if they live in a totalitarian state, they, they have no democratic possibility for, for stopping it. So those are the types of conversations you see initially. Presidents also tend to remove the savage tropes, the, tr the idiom of savagery from their discourse when they're looking for peaceful outcomes or, or, or resolution, peaceful resolutions to conflicts. And so they'll stop talking about the enemy as a savage, barbaric force. And, and Nixon is actually a really interesting example of this because Nixon is, in, in many ways, uh, does this better than I think most of the presidents I studied. He, he just you know, he stopped talking about the North Vietnamese for the most part, every now and then it popped up, but for the most part, he stopped talking about the North Vietnamese as uh, savage actors. And he talked about them as, as negotiators, as bargainers. And they were making arguments about why they should um, get a better deal out of him, which if you think about that is interesting because the president discussed the adversary as a thinking, rational set of individuals who are trying to get a good deal. The other thing that all, all of these presidents attempted to do is basically transcend the particulars of conflict and reframe that conflict in ways that served their peaceful desires. So for Truman, we won that war decisively. And so it's fairly easy for him to reframe the conflict because there's just no more enemy left. And so it becomes thinking about the disease of totalitarianism and the necessity for monitoring and, and staying focused on the possibility that that could return. For Eisenhower, the, the reframing is really a transference, the movement from, from Korea 
to the Soviet Union. But it's still a transcendence because he's he's attempting to get us to think about the sort of bigger picture issues involved rather than the relatively small geographic area where the Korean War occurred. And in Nixon as well, it's, he seeks his own form of transcendence by thinking about his peace process in, in Vietnam, primarily Vietnamization training the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese troops to fight their own war. He, he, he really wants to transcend the particulars of, of that conflict by proposing a sort of model for how future conflicts could be resolved, which is to say, build up your allies and, and focus on your allies rather than focusing on the enemies. And then, of course, with Obama, the transcendence is outside of the, it's quite similar in many ways. It's outside of the particulars of Afghanistan and the Taliban and, and moving to thinking about where terrorists are and how we can better find and contain them. So again, it's sort of transcending the geographic um, nature of the conflict. I think that's probably the primary similarities across these presidents. The last thing I'd say here is that one thing is clear is that all presidents have to address the figure of the enemy. The discourse of the enemy is so salient and it spreads so widely in political culture that presidents really have no choice but to but to address it and respond to it in some capacity if they want to get out of a war. I want to pick up on something you were just saying at the end of your response there about political culture and it's kind of latching onto the enemy. And that makes me think of the way in which these conflicts they position a president in a kind of managerial position, like trying to say some things, trying to give some orders, trying to make some things happen over here and over there, trying to tell the public one thing and the political culture, perhaps another thing or, or even the same thing. But the war seems to happen, you know, apart from that or, or alongside of it in, in interesting and very complicated ways. How effective do you think presidential rhetoric is at actually tamping out these conflicts or actually managing them in some way? Or is it a kind of response to the changing nature of things on the ground? Like I'm thinking here of, we're talking a little bit about Afghanistan, like as that effort sorts, sort of starts to wind down, we start to see incursions happening elsewhere, like in Syria. Like how effective is presidential rhetoric in these regards? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's a great question. And the only way to answer that, well, the way to answer that is to think about the different audiences that are involved in this rhetorical exchange. And, and I say that because my, my book is not focused so much on public efforts at persuasion. And I didn't focus on persuasion for two reasons. One, I was very interested in thinking about how this form of presidential discourse operates within the bureaucratic setting, how it influences the bureaucracy. And I was interested in that because when you start reading about uh, the various presidents and their engagement in the war, one of the things in war, one of the things you recognize is they're very constrained actors. They often come into to, to office with you know, sort of very high flying goals. So I can get us out of the war. You know, Eisenhower says, I'll go to Korea. You know, Obama pledges to end the war in Iraq and focus on the war in Afghanistan, sort of the wrong war, right war kind of discourse. Uh, but they all pretty much fail in their endeavors. And it's not because they're bad presidents, and it's not because they have bad ideas. And, and, and I think the book makes the argument fairly clearly that it's because war is sort of this insoluble problem. Once you get in it, it's really hard to get out of it, out of it unless you absolutely win it decisively, and we just don't win wars decisively. So 
that's one component of that is, that is when you ask about how effective is presidential rhetoric, well, I think it's more effective in some ways at the, at the level of bureaucracy, but you're right to think about the events sort of taking over this, the rhetorical strategy, if you will, incursions is one option. Uh, the other reason, though, that I, I didn't focus so much on public audiences is because I don't know if it's possible to make the argument that the president is particularly effective at persuading publics at the end of the war. And that's, again, it's because it's complex, right? Like the president is one actor of many. I mean, I always, I always, I, I thought about this a lot when I was writing the, the book because one of the initial drafts had focused much more on public audiences, but I kept coming back to this thing. Well, when Truman, when he agrees to, to, the, to drop the atom bomb, that's a moment when everybody in the country pays attention to his radio address because nobody has any idea what an atom bomb is. It's, it's completely new. And so everybody's kind of paying attention. But then after that, how much influence does Truman's perspective and his rhetoric, his discourse actually have on public views about World War II and then the security challenges afterwards? It's hard to say because he's then one of many, many, many commenters. And so I just kept coming back to this thought that maybe presidents matter a lot in those moments, but maybe sometimes they don't. And it's hard to know. But they do matter at the bureaucratic level because the types of decisions they make, and as I argue, the discourse they use to rationalize those decisions have a huge cascade impact on the policy bureaucracy and the way that that bureaucracy approaches the policy problems identified by the president. And so that's kind of why I focus on that. And in terms of effectivity, it, it kind of depends a little bit on, on the individual president. And each president in this book had moments of success and, and moments of, of failure. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Stephen J. Height, author of Resowing the Seeds of War, Presidential Peace Rhetoric Since 1945. Could you speak to the, like, what does it mean that, that as you say, these presidents, they come from different places on the political spectrum? They come into office often as Obama did, as Nixon did, with ambitious plans to make changes to the war, to do you know some sort of great shift in American foreign policy. And then, as you point out in this conversation and in the book, they come to saying the same kinds of things about what had happened. You know that that either there was a good deal, or the enemy has changed now, and we're focusing on a different enemy, or these other kinds of rhetorical gestures to manage, you know, developments in, in um, conflicts in American foreign policy. What does that say about the, the American state more broadly and the kind of policy bureaucracy that keeps these conflicts going over the terms of presidents spanning, you know, many years? I should not be terribly, I should not be so pessimistic <laughs> with the way I express things. That's number one. Th this book does not focus on how publics audiences respond to presidential discourse or presidential war making. It's not the principal focus of this book. There is good work out there that does do that. And I do mention, at least in passing in the Nixon chapter, that one of the pressures that Nixon felt was to end the war or to get out of the war successfully, not just because he campaigned on it, but also because there was a powerful anti-war movement that was really pushing him and he felt that pressure. And so one of the things I talk about in the conclusion as well as in, in, in the Obama chapter, is that we, we as a people need to think a little more consistently, I should say, I think, uh, you know, every day, think about 
the types of things that our country, the state is doing in our name. And, and unfortunately, anti-war movements tend to focus on the big events, right? Iraq was a big event, Afghanistan, but we, we tend, collectively, we tend to not pay as much attention on a day-to-day -day basis as perhaps we should, because the state will continue to do things in our name unless, unless there, is some, there are some serious checks. And in, in the current moment, the contemporary moment, there is now a renewed call to at least not fully repeal the authorization on the use of military force that was passed in 2001, uh, not, not fully repeal it, but at least amend it. And, and so I think that's one of the, you know, one of the areas where folks need to pay attention and really need to be press, pressuring their, their representatives and senators is, is to think about how can Congress be more involved in, I don't want to necessarily regulating foreign policy, but thinking about how Congress can be more involved in foreign policy deliberations, particularly when it involves questions of violence. Because I do describe in the Obama chapter, and I argue, I think fairly, fairly aggressively argue that one of the outcomes of Obama's rhetorical movement from identifying an enemy to, to disembodying an enemy is that we now have a situation where the foreign affairs bureaucracy can run almost independently from congressional scrutiny, as well as public scrutiny in the, in the orchestration of counterterrorism. And that's, that's problematic. It's deeply problematic for uh, democracy, for deliberation, and for the, the sort of ideal of peace. I think that's a good point. And, it, and I think it's one that bears some more attention in the conversation, because it is one of the prime contentions of your book that what is more common of American foreign policy are those kinds of movements than the sort of grand, you know, we declared war, we went, we won, you know, World War II, and now it's over. It's really this sort of extended kind of violent statecraft that characterizes what the U.S. has been doing you know, in the 20th and now in the 21st century. I'm not sure I have a question around that, but I think pursuing it to some degree would be, it would be interesting to hear some thoughts on the role of that bureaucracy in that or the role of peace rhetoric in maintaining conflict or maintaining violence at the heart of U.S. foreign policy, even as we kind of talk about existing in moments of peace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an important topic, and it's something that is receiving attention in a variety of fields. I mean, from my perspective, one of the things that we have to grapple with is the way that our political leaders characterize the security threats that we face. And I mean that I mean, that's what I'm arguing in this book. I think at the, in the conclusion and, and the Obama chapter, I mean, that the real, Obama's a, a super amazing orator and he really did create, a, he found a solution, right? He found a solution to the problem of Iraq and Afghanistan, which was, as I've said, is, is disembodied the enemy. It's no longer, it's a sort of faceless kind of, they could be anywhere kind of enemy. And that is the thing that means we can leave Afghanistan. We can leave Iraq because it's no longer about, conquering territory and holding that territory. And in fact, that can cause blowback, that can cause, you know, can lead to more recruitment of terrorists and and it makes and exposes our troops to acts of violence. It, instead, it's about being mobile, about being, you know, possibly striking anywhere at any point wherever you find a potential adversary. And so it's it's a very, it's a genius rhetorical move um, that fits the sort of uh, military strategy that's under foot. But the downside of that is that it means we're likely to continue to seek seek out, search for those types of threats. And I think as a you know, democratic polity, I think we have to grapple with that. Is that the kind of foreign policy we want to have? Do we want to do we want to have a 
Um, do we want to empower our presidents and our bureaucracies to uh, seek out enemies and uh, and kill them? I mean, is that something we want to have or, or do we want to seek other solutions? There's a, a, a discursive echo to this in some of our other policy debates. And one of the discursive echoes I've been thinking about is um, how thinking about the, the people who are migrating from South, Central and South America and, and what we do at the border and how we address those types of challenges. And I'm reminded of Julian Castro's um, campaign statement that we should have a, a Marshall Plan for Central America, which is to say we should address root causes. Rather than thinking about this as sort of crisis response, we should address root causes. And so I've thought how does that implicate the way we, we address terrorism or security challenges? And I think it's it's interesting to think about, and I think it, it merits more discussion and more, more thought about what it would mean to address the root causes of terrorism rather than just responding to danger with violence. And, and, and if we could push, if we could push our political leadership in that direction, then I think we have a chance to reduce the the, the quantity of of violent statecraft to, to alter that maybe fundamentally. Um, but that's that's the project that I think the American people have to invest in if they wanna if they want to shift the course. Are there lessons from the end of the Vietnam War here in that regard? I mean, Vietnam is often held up as this strange paradox where we definitively, you know, lost that war. We did not win the war in Vietnam. And yet the Vietnamese state seems to have come through it, you know, and or is held up as having come through it as, you know, successfully entering the global economy and modernizing in some way. And that, you know, that there is some way in which that transition from a state of war to to a state of peace was was beneficial ultimately to the Vietnamese you know, from the perspective of the 21st century is there something about like how that transition was handled that might help us think about addressing the rhetoric in the way you're talking about like shifting from crisis response and and violent intervention to management of root causes and and other kinds of ways of intervening that are not, you know, inherently violent and colonial? There may be, there may be. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging because Vietnam did that on its own. It did that without any, any involvement of the United States. We didn't reestablish diplomatic relations, if I'm not mistaken, until 1993 when Bill Clinton did it. So Vietnam is, I mean, it's an interesting case because we lost definitively and it turned out probably to be better for them that we did. My, my sense with, with Afghanistan and Iraq is that we are dealing with a different type of colonial legacy. And I, I don't know if the U.S. has great potential there. My, in fact, my, my reading of, of the, the war on terror is, is not that the bureaucracy just wants to go kill people. It's that they're making a rational calculation that their power is limited, deeply limited, and, and they've had lessons in, the, in those limitations in terms of building, rebuilding Afghanistan, building schools, to, attempting to modernize the economy. They've experienced a great deal of lessons along the way the last 15, 20 years, and that they are now recognizing those limits and resorting to uh, what I've called violent statecraft because that is the, the, the most viable option they see before them for stopping security threats, right? Um, so, so yes, I, th I think there is something to learn from Vietnam, but I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned 
about the ways in which the U.S. political leaders discuss issues of development and issues of modernization, while at the same time continuing to justify and argue for and, and authorize drone strikes and other forms of, of aggressive military actions against um, whoever they, they think deserves them. And, and so it's, you know, I, I guess the, the, the sort of answer I can give you here is that I'm not sure if the U.S. is the right actor to facilitate post-colonial transitions in countries like Afghanistan or Iraq, especially given the recent history of the U.S. in those countries. I think that's an important lesson, you know, a strong point about <laughs> you can't uh, can't depend upon the people who made the mess to clean it up, you know, even if only because of all of the hostility surrounding that incursion to begin with. Is the presidential rhetoric of peace effective at rehumanizing folks who have been made enemy combatants? Is there evidence that that sort of rhetorical category is something that we can actually overcome, or are we just moving the target with each new conflict? It's a fascinating question. <laughs> it's a fascinating question, one that I have grappled with, mostly because the, the clearest case of rehumanization rhetoric that worked is World War II, but it worked in differential capacities. After World War II, Truman's recuperative rhetoric with the Germans pretty much proved effective. And a lot of the anti-German animosity and, and the, the slurs, et cetera, pretty much disappeared from the U.S. Verna, you know, public vernacular vocabulary um, to the point where you know, we love German beer and things like that. The Japanese, it was more complicated. And I, Truman worked hard to, to recuperate the Japanese, but what he did was he infantilized them. They were like children, um, you know, immature. They need our assistance to, to develop. And, and that seemed to have some positive um, implications for how the U.S. publics viewed the Japanese. But of course, when, when the Cold War ended, I mean, among other incidents, but when the Cold War ended, the first thing that big thinkers were doing was looking around and saying, well, who's the next big adversary? And they all landed on the Japanese. And in fact, there were public controversy because the Japanese were buying the Seattle um, baseball team. And there were, you know, movies about, you know, Japanese, scary Japanese uh, gangs and mafias. And and there was sort of this rise of kind of anti-Japanese sentiment, which in, in, in my reading, which this is not in, in the book, but in my reading, it's, it, you know, Truman's rehumanization rhetoric is, is, is very effective in that post-war period, very effective. But culture kind of continues on its own anyway. And you can't solve racism, right? You cannot solve racism by having a president just issue a series of speeches. And that's kind of how I think of the rehumanization of the Japanese. Yes, it worked from a policy perspective and it had some implications for public culture, but anti-Japanese racism didn't just disappear at the end of World War II. It, it continued to survive in many forms along the way. To the events of this month, uh, as Asian Americans are subject to all kinds of vitriol and, and violence, here in the States. I mean, it's really interesting to hear you thinking about the sort of relationship between the 
kinds of post-war rhetoric you're talking about and the rhetoric of model minorities that we have in this country? Because it seems like those two things go hand in hand. Like there's a way of saying after World War II that the, as you say, the Japanese are kind of infantilized and they need our help. And like that leads so smoothly into what we see now in you know, some of the white supremacist circles where folks are looking at Asians and saying, well, look, see how well they've integrated and how well they've accepted our beneficence and how well they've adapted to our institutions. Those two things seem to go hand in hand. And they seem of a piece uh, when you think of them in the historical context of conflict that underlies that relationship and, and punctuates it in so many different ways. And it replicates that that discourse, the contemporary discourse replicates that same us-them distinction. Asians are, are still them. They're still others in that in that rendition. And it's at what point are 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 they actually us? Like they're like we're all Americans, even though we have different origins, histories, heritages, et cetera, right? And and so in in my mind, it exposes significant limits of presidential recuperator, you know, rehumanization rhetoric, uh, because I'll put it this way. Presidents see a political and policy problem to solve, not a cultural thing to shift or change. And so they will produce the, the rhetoric the best they can to address that policy and political question and then move on. And so it doesn't, it doesn't get to any of those core underlying questions. Instead, it's just sort of what's pragmatic and practical in the situation. Well, and I think it's unnerving to think about it in terms of the war on terror, because there is an unfortunate degree to which, like compared to the German example, it's sort of easier to imagine ending hostilities with a nation or a people's confined to a nation than it is to imagine ending hostilities toward a concept that then is sort of broadly applied to anyone you know, from a Somali American in Minneapolis to a Syrian refugee in, you know, in London to, you know, someone else from fleeing Afghanistan in France. Like if you can paint that broad swath of people belonging to all kinds of different ethnic groups as other, that seems much more difficult to undo. And as you say in the book, much more likely to lead to additional state violence than, you know, something horrible, but confined to like, well, it's this particular group in this particular moment. And now we put an end to that conflict with a declaration of victory. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's hard to, it's hard to speak to the real, I guess, fear of, of what, of what I've explained or what I've, what I've argued. Um, and I think you put it, you put it eloquently. I, I'm deeply concerned. I mean, re- writing this book has left me deeply concerned that uh, given that our Counterterrorism focus right now and our definition of the enemy now is so diffuse that it could be, you know, I think I even say some, something like, you know, any, any person in basically two thirds of the world could be a target, um, including, you know, the goat herder who just happens to be providing, you know, milk and cheese to the folks that we think are terrorists, right? And, and so, when you think about how we've defined the enemy in this contemporary era as, as you know, conceptual, general conceptual sort of Muslim, anti-Western, etc., um, but not in any bounded capacity, it expands the domain of potential state action, violence, geographically, but also means that it's it's very difficult to 
to contain in term from from a sort of outside perspective, from a public um, and deliberative perspective, it's very difficult to push back against that because you don't have a easy to go to rhetorical strategy like maybe you had with with Vietnam. Well, and conceptually too, it's in, you know that definition is so broad that it in, includes U.S. citizens and and all kinds of other actors uh, who you know you wouldn't traditionally think of as you know part of an enemy group. You know, this leads me to ask a sort of where are we today question. Do you see the Biden administration approaching this kind of rhetoric? How has the Biden administration, in your perspective, taken over management of U.S. foreign policy in this sort of limbo between war and peace? So it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually. Um, and I've been thinking about it, obviously, just because it's on my head, but also because if you read the debates from Obama's first year to year and a half, if you read those debates, the internal administration debates closely, Biden is the primary advocate for getting out of Afghanistan in 2009 or 2010. He's the one that pushes a counterterrorism strategy rather than trying to rebuild the country, trying to build democracy and, and all of the other endeavors. You know, he's basically the, the guy who says, look, we can't win this. We have to get out of here. And so when I'm Biden had his first press conference and, you know, so he was asked, do you think we'll get out of Afghanistan by the May deadline? And he said, I didn't think so, because it's hard to move that many troops out in that short period of time. And they said, well, do you think we'll have troops in next year? And he said, I find that hard to believe that we would have troops in Afghanistan next year. I think he wants to get out. I think he's, it's prag pragmatic from him, but it's also political. I mean, you know, one of the things that really hamstrung the the Obama administration was Afghanistan, that he just couldn't really get out. And I think Biden wants out. That said, I don't think Biden is going to fundamentally alter the rhetorical dynamics that I've described. He was and likely remains a proponent of, of counterterrorism. And that is basically the thing that I'm describing in the conclusion of the book or the conclusion of the Obama chapter, especially, you know, that this sort of diffuse enemy that we now have is the thing that justifies continuing to remain vigilant and striking enemies who we determine to be threats or individuals we determine to be threats. So I'm, I'm sort of optimistic on the one hand that Biden is going to get us out of Afghanistan finally, uh, but I'm, I'm pessimistic that he's going to fundamentally alter the rendition of or the description we have of contemporary 21st century enemies. Um, that being said, I don't, I don't see any presidential candidate or any potential president right now who's going to fundamentally alter that uh, characterization of security threats. I think we, we are in a position where we as citizens are the ones that would need to push for that. And unfortunately, um, we don't have a ton of influence or, or advocacy groups on our side at the moment. And that's something we have to build. Well, and I think as you point out, it's important that the book points out, it, it's important to recognize that that has long been the state of affairs in the United States. In the 19th century, it was the state of affairs. You know, around the country's founding, when we finished up fighting with the English, we just transferred the, the hostilities um, more intensely to the Native Americans, and that there's always been this sort of persistent, like, need to have that aspect of American foreign policy and domestic policy, I don't know, as a means of uniting the country around a common enemy of, of directing economic activity toward the manufacturer and deployment of arms, etc. Uh, but it's part of a long history. And even uh, one of the things I found so insightful about your book is this 
notion that peace is not necessarily peace so much an ending of a particular kind of legal hostility in favor of a different kind of managerial activity, which, as you say, is much more difficult to imagine activating against and and advocating against because it's so diffuse and it can be as threatening as the rhetoric makes it out to be. That's right. I mean, that's that's. I think that's a nice articulation of the problem. I, I end with it's and 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 one of you know one of the things I end with in the conclusion is that we really need. I call it a rhetorical sensitivity, um, rhetorical sensitivity to spread you know widely across our public culture, so that instead of just accepting you know news that pops across our screens, drone strikes, attack, blah blah blah, um, instead of accepting that, we we need to start questioning. Well, why are we doing that? What are we trying to accomplish? And we need to have that needs to be part of a broader public conversation if we want to see these things change, because it is harder to uh, resist the sort of managerial aspects of of state power. And, and it's also, I mean, something worth saying is that a lot of this is completely hidden from public view. You know, there, there were a number of, of attempts to get the Obama administration to um, more clearly identify who they're attacking and why they were bombed, et cetera. Um, under the Trump administration, that was just not effective at all. I mean, the Obama administration was at least responsive to some of these public pressures. The Trump administration just tended to ignore them. And so I, I do think, you know, I'm a little more optimistic about uh, Biden as well, because I do think there's a chance he will respond to queries from different types of groups about the types of military actions that he may or may not authorize. And, and you know, that's, that's something. I mean, it, it, if, if we force presidents or the national security bureaucracy to provide more clear and consistent rationales for why they are engaging in, in military action, then we have a much better opportunity for pushing back against some of those things if, if that's what's demanded. Well, Stephen, I think that's a, a pretty strong note to end on and a, and a really compelling uh, case for the book, which does compel us to think very seriously about the way that foreign conflict is depicted and our role in it and the president's role in it, and to get us thinking about the genre of that kind of speech. And as you say here, some ways that we as citizens, as congresspeople, et cetera, can think about intervening in those discourses, uh, hopefully for the better. So I just wanted to thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. I've had a splendid time getting to spend a little bit of time with your book, and I can't recommend it enough. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Dr. Height's book, Resowing the Seeds of War, Presidential Peace Rhetoric Since 1945, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. Stephen is at SJH Rhetoric on Twitter, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.